You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey folks, uh, Brendan and Steve here. Um, this episode, we're going to be talking about um, transformation and how people move towards change and um, and how they get unstuck in certain situations. And we believe that and that there's three ways that that can happen. Um, and so I'll just kind of name them and then we'll kind of throw it to Steve to kind of talk about what those are and um, figure out some examples. So Steve, number one um, in moving towards change is uh, externalizing rather than internalizing. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I think the reason people don't tend to grow in the West is we believe that internalizing leads to change. So, for example, we believe if you read a book, you're going to grow. But what we practice in our class is we think you have to try things on. You have to talk about them with somebody. So, like, when we're teaching our class that we teach, when I'm doing a workshop, uh, we're always trying to get people to talk to each other about the thing they learn because they have to get it out of their head. And where, where I've really found that, that this, I think, is what the Bible talks about when it talks about confession. I actually think us Protestants have really lost something that the Catholic Church has where they actually get to go to a priest, say out loud their sins, and then be, be given absolution. Mm-hmm. And I understand theologically the, the danger of some of that. I also understand some of the shame that has come through the Catholic Church in that. Right. But I don't think we should throw the baby out of the bathwater. I think... Sitting down with another human being and confessing the way you think or, or saying out loud, hey, I'm anxious right now, automatically makes you less anxious. It's just weird. So I think we learned this years ago. This is actually why we built the class. Um, and it's actually why I almost didn't write the book because I didn't believe right. that these principles could be read about. I always believe they have to be tried on. Oh, absolutely. So I put a lot of work in the book. At, at the end of every chapter, I actually agonized over the uh, discussion questions, really hoping that people would find somebody and talk through these concepts. So yeah, that's that's step one. I, I would say if if you're struggling to grow and you're frustrated that you're not being transformed, um, I think the next step is if you're primarily internalizing, if you listen to podcasts like this and if you're reading, but you're not hashing it out with someone, I think it's just going to bounce around in your head. Uh, and the the side thing that that leads me to, I'd love to throw this to you. The other concept that we teach in the class is that self-awareness by itself is overrated. Right. It feels like we live in a, in a culture that's obsessed with self-awareness. And I think we're trying to make the case that self-awareness is really good, but it's just the beginning of a journey. Um, right. You have to be willing to change. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of people that say, hey, I am this and this, or I'm a... Oh, I, I don't know what the terms are in the uh, strength finders thing, but I'm this and this, but I'm not willing to change here. If you want to learn how to interact with me, read this about me, interact with me that way. <laughs> right. Which, you know, I, I felt prey to that too at, at some point was I, uh, I've talked, we talked about this before. I'm a dominant personality. So I am very much get on my, get on the, get on the, get in the car with me and start yeah. driving or else get out of the car. Um, and, I was, I knew that about myself. Like I knew I was very strong willed. I knew I was very determined to do things. I knew that I could lead. Um, but I didn't really care to change how I led. And I think that's what this stuff does is, is self-awareness with an intent to be aware of the dark side to every part of your self. 
Um, for example, um, externalizing rather than internalizing for me, I think um, realizing that sometimes I just need to shut up in a, in a meeting format or a group format and let other people talk instead of myself because I, when I talk, when I am the first one to speak, nine times out of 10, everybody else gets quiet. Yeah. And so I had to learn how to stop always having to have an opinion. And somebody told me that. And then I said, okay, you know, I'm going to watch myself. Yep, I definitely did this this next time. Yeah. Okay, so let's, what do I need to do? Okay, I'm going to wait to talk until, you know, 50% of the people have talked. Um, making small goals like that for myself. And then I was often surprised that I wasn't the one who always had the best ideas either. Like, I think that I had the best ideas, but oftentimes somebody else had one that was way better than me if I just gave them the chance to talk. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one way. <laughs> the long-winded way to answer your question, yeah. going back to externalizing. One of my favorite podcast guests is Chuck DeGroote. He's actually our only, so far, our only returning guest. He's been on twice. <laughs> Chuck's amazing. The last time he was on the show, just a few weeks ago, he just made this passing comment that I've heard before and I believe I practice, but it, it made me want to say, do I still practice this? Do people still believe this? He just said in passing, he said, oh, yeah, so I had this standing um, understanding with my students. In the, he's a professor at a mm -hmm. seminary with my students in the faculty I work with that I always want to know how you experience me and if you ever experience me in a way that is different from the values I profess, I would appreciate hearing that. And wow. he was just, he, he wasn't like harping on that idea. He was just saying, oh, just to set up the story I'm about to tell you, here's something. I have the standing rule. And um, I've got a friend of mine who has every, every year, there's staff, mostly they're on this one team. They go around the room and they say, okay, What's the one contribution that I have that the rest of us don't have that you really need me to keep doing? What's the one habit you wish I would stop doing that is getting in the way? Hmm. And, he, and then he's the lead guy. He says, I'll go first. And they all get to tell him, Here's, boy, I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you wouldn't be as sarcastic or I wish you wouldn't always feel like you have to say something. And then they all write it on the board. They all go around. And then at the end, they all say, okay, we're going to commit to work. We're not going to say we can eliminate that shadow side, but we're going to commit to working on it. And whenever you see me doing it, even though I'm working on it, please let me know it. I'd appreciate it. I think that's an example of externalization where, where self-awareness, you can be a self-aware, what's the podcast word for it? Ass, right? <laughs> you can be a self-aware jerk and not experience the transformation of the gospel but once you start noticing the negative impact of that on others and you want to change, I think that's where transformation oh, happens. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's... Uh, somebody can tell, could have told me that I was a leader, and they did, and that I, you know, I was very determined to do stuff, but it wasn't until somebody challenged me and said, hey, you, you think you're doing good, and this is great, but you're actually inhibiting me by yeah. doing this. And so I think... Yeah, I think being able to talk through this stuff is huge. You can't just read about it at all. Yeah, yeah. So, well, the the second one, Steve, to um, towards transformation is testing assumptions going in and out of change. Yeah, this what one's is, harder. Yeah, yeah externalization is easier because I think you can get people in chat and try on things. Like even every time we're on the show together, we're trying to give tools for people to practice. That's externalization. Testing assumptions in and out of change is the idea that the way you think is what got you into the problem in the first place. Right. 
and and we've kicked around second order change together on this podcast a few times. Um, and it is a second order change idea that whatever it is that you're frustrated about, your thinking habits and your worldview is what's gotten you into that point. And if you don't think about the way you think, if you don't uh, doubt your assumptions, then you're going to use your worldview and assumptions to try to get you out of the problem and that's just going to get you deeper in. And so that's assumptions going into change. So it's the ability to think about the way you think. If you're naturally a person who's skeptical of others, what I usually prescribe is, are you skeptical of your skepticism? Like that's been a big one for a lot of people. They really pride themselves on being contrary or skeptical. And I've often said to people, well, who's challenging that? Like they're, they're like wholeheartedly accepting their skepticism as a gift. They're not seeing it as a... As a but for example, um, the older I get, the less cynical I get. When I was mm-hmm. in my 20s, I was a really cynical person and I thought I was so cool. And now I'm 48. I haven't been cynical in a long time. But now cynicism really turns me off. But mm. I know for some people, they really see it as an asset. Huh. And I just see it as an ass. <laughs> like when somebody's cynical, I'm like, you don't know how to be intimate with another person. You don't know how to hold space for other people. You don't know how to be with people in their pain. Uh, you think it's ar- It's a form of arrogance, but it's their cynicism that got them into this rigid way of thinking. And if they're not skeptical of their own skepticism, they're never going to change. And then coming out of it, like what we said is, you have to test your assumptions going into change and coming out of change. Usually what keeps people stuck is they don't believe the future can be better. Right. So where I first learned this, honestly, was doing a lot of work with people in domestic violence. Mm. That's where I first started really working on my obsession with how do people grow? How do they change? How can we help them grow and change? Um, It was in Las Vegas where I worked in Las Vegas. A lot of my work was with mostly women in domestic violence. And just noticing them being treated awfully, verbal abuse, physical abuse, violence, it was was unbelievable. And they simply couldn't believe that there was any hope on that they had to stay with this guy. And I just thought, oh man, like if only you could see, because we had money, we had a shelter, we had jobs lined up, we had everything ready to roll. But until they could believe that there's hope, we couldn't get him to leave and... Right. It's pretty pretty dark. Yeah, that, man. <laughs> yeah, I think um, from as I'm thinking through this right now, like in the, as an example of testing assumptions, one of the things that I've always struggled with is uh, control. Is have a feeling like I have to control every aspect of everything that happens. Yeah. Um, I knew that, that that was a problem. I didn't realize how much of a problem it was until I got married. Yeah. Um, right. So, Marriage is a great gift for that. <laughs> one of the, our first first disagreements, I remember, was about how to chop potatoes for mashed potatoes. Can you believe that? <laughs> All right, we're going to peel them. Uh, I cube them this way. No, I cube them this way, but your chunks are bigger. No, they're supposed to be smaller because it's easier to cook them. And I remember uh, Kelsey and I, I mean, it like it was a legitimate argument. And yeah. I just remember, I was like, why did we fight about the way that potatoes got cut? I don't yeah. know. And then I started kind of trying to look out for it later on, like what, how else is this showing up? And then I started realizing, oh man, it's because I feel like that if I, if it's not a certain way that it's not going to be okay. Yes. And Kel, I mean, Kelsey's going to point it out to me is like, Hey, you, 
you, you feel like you have to do all these things. I am very capable of doing all these things and yeah. they're going to turn out fine. Yeah. Um, That's a great example. Yeah. Potatoes. <laughs> well, and it's so real. Yeah. So, so the antidote to that one is you do, it's kind of like we talked about in the last episode about um, making a mistake. You do have to test your assumptions by trying something different. I, I th the most powerful tool we've taught in the class, I believe, is if you can train people to think about the way they think, like you now know that you need to be in control of potato square footage, you, you'll, and you're laughing about it, you'll never be able to correct her again. Like, because it's kind of, you're onto yourself. I don't know how to say it, but like the, right. the, it's been exposed now. Yeah, and I, and I think... She now has the ability to the power to say to me too because I've given her that power to say, "Hey, she's like I'm holding the knife, yeah, <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I'll manage the potatoes." <laughs> but I do think it's a good example is now that you know that you do this. Um, what we teach in the classes is to picture a, a flame and you're the moth, and just you got to ask yourself how many more times do I want to go get burned. Right. And that's actually what we used to do with domestic violence survivors is, mm -hmm. is to t I haven't done this work in depth for 15 years. So I'm, I'm rusty, but 15 years ago in Las Vegas, the average um, woman would receive seven point something violent episodes before they'd leave. Wow. Yeah. And statistically in domestic violence, it escalates. Mm. So after the first hit, the next incident's going to be worse and worse. Like there's a there's a reverse conditioning that happens with a guy where he feels more power and then more remorse. So typically they maybe they'll they'll slap one time and then they're apologetic. But the more the violence, the more they beg for remorse later, huh. and it becomes this crazy intense thing. So if a woman would come in, I almost always try to have a woman with me helping because I was very aware I'm a man. There's a limit to what I can do. But we would just very gently try to say to this lady, how many times has he hit you? And they almost always understate it because they don't want to throw their man under the bus. So we'd learned on how to just normal, speak normally. Like I remember I got really good at saying, yeah, so when he puts his hands around your neck, right? Like that's got to be scary to not be able to breathe. And she'd be like, how did you know? And even though she'd never mentioned it, you kind of try to lead him into sharing so then you figure out, okay, this has happened three times. Hmm. And we'd say to them, okay, well, statistically, there's four more to go. So what do you want to do? Do you want to beat the odds? Do you want to – when we were just trying to get them to think about the way they think, just to, just because wow. they're so in it, right? Like right. You, when you're so in your situation, you can't see the forest for the trees. It's a pretty stark example. Yeah. But I think that's what we all do. We We really don't believe the gospel. We don't believe – that God has a future, not in a prosperity doctrine way, but just in Christ, there's always more possibilities than we see. Yes. And the anxiety tells us there's no hope. There's right. no future. Yep. And the potatoes have to be exactly this way in order to- They have to, to be cut smaller so yeah. they can boil faster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you still <laughs> think you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny you say that there's a- uh, an average for people. I mean, I mean that's an extreme example. I think with yeah. the domestic. It's a life and death event. example, right? Um, I think for me, it's it's been a lot. It was a lot longer. Of a yeah, process. Less, yeah, less at stake. Right. You, the other thing in in your case, being a, 
having a control freak tendency is there's a positive side of that gift. You're you're a get it done guy, right? Uh, that's so that's why it takes longer. Is I've 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 noticed on the show when I interview white guys like us, um, aware white guys, we've all gone through the same journey where we were affirmed for all our gifts until somewhere in our mid twenties. Right. And then someone finally came along and told us what an ass we were. Right. (laughs) And most of us who are dominant personality white guys have had that necessary journey. I think that's true. Yeah. So I think the differences between violence, which is life and death and, and control is actually your tendency toward control has served you and others very well. And right. also being a detriment depending on the situation. Right. There's definitely been relationships I think back on that I totally ruined, like with people just because of yep. the way that I was. Me too. Um, and I have gone back and actually called and apologized to some of those people. Yeah, me too. It's humbling. So, and healing. Right. Yeah. It's really hard to do. I mean, it's... It's externalizing. It's, yeah. It's hard to admit that you've done something to hurt somebody else, I think. I th- you talk about externalizing when you go to someone and say, here's the impact can you tell me the impact right and then you have to see it and deal with it that'll change you yeah that's a good actually that's actually a good practice so if you're looking at the first two that we've talked about externalizing instead of internalizing and then moving to testing assumptions i think i think you almost need to go to somebody else yeah somebody that you trust and say hey i've been i've noticed i do this a lot can you speak to that like yeah. what what is it doing to you um, and then maybe even ask for input. Why do you think that I do that? Yeah. I, I think that that would be a good way to kind of get started on this whole thing. Um, yeah, and if someone comes to you, you can, it, you know, you get defensive. Right. But if you can get past it and say, thank you for telling me, I'd like to hear more. What I've tended to tell people is, I believe you. I want to work on it. This is a longstanding habit. Like sometimes people will come to me with things that I'm aware of and I just haven't. I'm still impacting negatively. And to them, I'll say something like, I really appreciate you telling me, I want you to know I'm aware of it, but it really helped to hear because I wasn't aware in that situation. So that was a gift to me. And it would also be a gift if you would be willing to tell me when you see me do it again. Right. And that's very humbling and humble. There's other times where I've had to tell people, I was not aware that I did that. Having heard you tell me, I believe you. Mm. It's like blind spot knowledge, what we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to know that I'm kind of a rookie in changing. <laughs> like I'm just now learning how to work on this. So I'd appreciate your patience. And also I'm going to work on it and let me know. Which ties into the third thing, which is bravely practice. Brave practice. Yeah. yeah. Is to continue to um, look, be looking for it and, and attempting the best that you can to catch yourself as you're doing those things. Actually put yourself... I feel like this is the one that our, when we've, we, we do our eight-month class, it feels to me like our class doesn't take this one seriously till about six months in. Right. I wonder why that is. I, I think brave practice is terrifying. So like, okay, so our three, our three sta- stages of change are externalized rather than internalized. If, if you're reading books and listening to podcasts and not changing, that's normal. You have to talk. You have to try it on. The second one is, You have to learn to think about the way you think, Uh, test your assumptions going into and out of change. The one we're talking about now, you have to bravely practice. So yes, you're either going to people where you know you have a negative impact or what, what we typically do with people is we say, what kind of situations and people make you anxious? Okay, this week, go be with those people and get yourself in those situations. Right. 
Yeah, it, I, thinking back to the class now, it does take you a while. We did have one student who did do it almost right away, though. He was brave, too, yeah. and I, I was surprised <laughs> when he did it. We, it was our first week together, I think. Or yeah, I, it was first or second week when we got into our small split-off groups. Yeah, I, my take on that particular student is I think he values integrity so highly, he gave us his word, and then he made him. <laughs> and I've done that before. I've Because I also value integrity highly, I've put myself under the gun with people where I'll say, all right, I'm not going to do it, so I'm going to give you my word that I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> and now I have to do it because my word's on the line. Oh, man. Yeah, can, do you have an example where you've brave, bravely practiced? Um, I've got one. And I yeah, can go ahead. I'll, I'll be thinking while you're, you're chatting away. One, one of the things I noticed, I, I've shared this a good bit, but I, I don't know if I've shared it a lot on the podcast. Uh, let's say 10, 12 years ago, I started to recognize that one of my triggers that generates anxiety is always needing to know the answer. Mm -hmm. And I noticed with my kids, with my wife, with our staff, I would get worn out by them treating me like a human Google where they're constantly wanting to know. Uh, today, my daughter, who's wonderful, says to me, do you know when we bought the yogurt? Like, how would I know when we bought the yogurt? <laughs> It's a perfectly valid question. What's weird is that I had to stop myself getting off the couch. She's, at the, she's the one at the fridge. I have to stop myself from getting up from the couch to go check the yogurt on when it expires. Oh, my goodness. There's something in me that loves to know the answer. And it's, it's the positive trait is I'm very helpful to be. I'm, very helpful. I'm a very helpful human being. The negative is I'm constantly needing people to know that I know something. And when you're wrong, you feel awful. And when you're wrong, you feel like an idiot. Yeah. The best thing in my life is when I'm wrong. It's real, and and I have people that enjoy showing me when I'm wrong, and that's a gift. But I had to notice in myself, and I had to say to Kaylee, you know, honey, I have no idea when we bought that yogurt, but I tell you what, I'm sure the expiration is on the lid, which she knows. And then I look at the way my staff. You, this is years ago. We broke this pattern four or five years ago now, but. I used to be the go-to person on everything. And, um, and so I recognize that I'm the problem. Like typically when you first start getting frustrated, you external, you think everyone else is the problem. Why can't they figure this out for themselves? I think when you start to transform is when you look at the recurring pattern, why is everyone always coming to me for an answer they already have? It's because I project this confidence that I don't really have, but I project it. People then need somehow my approval and I have this deep need to know things. So I started working on that, man, 10 years ago. And as you can tell, it's still a work in progress for me. Mm. But my solution was brave practice. I'll wow. give two examples. So I would intentionally move into an elders meeting and make sure I said, I don't know, four times, mm -hmm. even when I knew. So someone would ask me something. I knew the answer and I'd say, you know what? I don't know. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Mm. Just to stop myself. Hey, I know the answer. Because... It was like I was a little freaking kid. Like, I know, I know. My hand's in the air like I'm in the classroom. And I know why. It's because I spent most of my childhood feeling stupid. And it's like this massive overcompensation for feeling dumb. Uh, the other, my, my most favorite brave practice story was when I discovered that I was living under the bondage of needing every sermon to be amazing. Mm -hmm. and, all, and I started to notice the impact on that. And I intentionally preached a bad sermon and never told anybody. And that was about seven or eight years ago. <laughs> I got up and I preached a really boring sermon. 
And I acted really proud of it, even though it was bad. And people would like t say, nice job. And I'd say, thanks. And that was brave practice. Oh man. Yeah. So I've got, I've got two. One, one is very similar to yours. And I think, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast or not, but I've definitely talked about it in the class that we've had is the, the same thing is trying to feel like I have to know everything. And people always asking me yeah, like, Hey, what do you think? What do you know about that? And always having to have an input. Or an I don't opinion. know, but let me find out. Right. Yeah. So uh, Google, uh, one of my friends actually said, Hey, we should Brendan this, which is phrase for Googling it. Right. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> um, but I think I, just discovered where it came from. I think I've, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast. Have I? About I remember? Okay. Well, well I, sh I, w I wish I knew the answer, but well, I actually don't. Well, oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that I finally figured out where that need to always have to be the smartest person in the room came from? Was when I was in third grade, some teacher called me up to the front of the room. Um, she said, "Hey, everybody, this is Brendan, and he got an F on this paper, and you sh this is why you shouldn't do it like he did." And I just remember feeling awful major shame and that's that's where that came from is i'm never want to feel this way ever again um and my part of my practice is um i if i want to know the answer to how seagulls survive long journeys across the ocean <laughs> i cannot look it up anymore like if it, in the instance i know that sounds funny that's great um because <laughs> i had the same now i'm resisting I, how do they i actually know the answer and i'm not okay. going to tell you <laughs> that's awesome um but yeah, is you know if if somebody if I start thinking about curiously about something and I um, want to know what it is, I stop myself from looking at them. And say, you know what? I don't know. I'm just going to leave it at that and not try to look into it any further. Yeah. Now there are times where it is fun to like, hey, I want to know how this animal does whatever. Yeah. Um, but not always having to have an answer in my back pocket because that's the whole reason I'm looking it up in the first place is to store it in some vault in my head to pull out whenever it's needed for some random purpose. It's really useful for trivia, right. by the way. Yeah. But for the most part, it's it's not healthy. Is if I if somebody says, "Hey, man, how do you um hotwire this car to make it work well or something like that?" I I mean, I can go look it up. Right. But I I think allowing them to find the answer for themselves has been my challenge is to not um, always have to have that answer. And that's how I briefly practice is to stop Googling things all the time. That's a really good example. And I've also noticed that I'm puzzled by non-curious people. I don't- Yeah, that I drives me nuts. Yeah, I don't know what to do with them. And so I noticed to myself, if, if they're curious about something, but not curious enough to Google it or YouTube it, I want to do it for them. Right. <laughs> and so sick. I've had to stop that so and figure out- it's okay with me that they don't care. I actually just watched, Kelsey's been rewatching House during oh, this yeah. whole, what a whole great thing. Show, yeah. um, one episode that I walked in on, there was this lady who was dying from something and he, um, he's, she's with her family and he is about ready to explain what it is. And she's like, I don't care. I'm dying. I don't want to know. And he, he just, he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. Yeah. He's, so he's like, but, and she's like, I don't want to know. And so you he started walking out. Yeah. And then he left and then came back and says, I have, why do you not want to know? I have to tell you. Yeah. And I, I feel the same way about a lot of things. Like yeah. that's just the way that I am. It sounds like that's the way you are. With yeah. Things. I think the big lesson for our listeners is that's our problem. Not like if, if our listeners have this kind of syndrome and you're frustrated at other people, it's not them. 
Right. You've generated systemically this whole culture where you're the go-to person. Yeah. You need to be okay with not always finding the answer to your curiosity sometimes. Yeah. And so brave practice is not knowing. Um, I had I had an experienced leader pull me aside. We'd moved into our building and we were growing a ton and people were grabbing me more for more things and I was really being struggling with it. And uh, the, the guy's name's Barry. Barry pulled me aside. He's like, hey, my number one leadership development tool is not show up. I'm like, what? He said, sometimes I just don't show up to the building and then people have to figure it out. The only reason they're asking you is not because they need you. It's because you're there. <laughs> I was like, that's profound. Oh, man. And uh, that, I took that to heart. So uh, let me recap and then I actually want to spend just five minutes because you said something profound that I want to grab while we're recording because we're actually wrapping up the season. We're not coming back till um, August. Yeah. So I, I don't want to miss this because it was pretty cool. So let me wrap up. Uh, if you're feeling spiritually stuck or bored or burned out uh, and, and like one more Bible study isn't going to do it, one more book isn't going to do it, we recommend uh, externalizing rather than internalizing, testing the assumptions going into and out of change, bravely practicing. Mm. All right. So you mentioned this third grade incident, and I don't remember if you've shared it on the show or in the class because I've heard it from you, mm-hmm. and both times I was struck by it. I just want to explore as we, as we wrap up for the summer the power of one incident in our childhood oh my gosh. to infect our entire adulthood. So that's what we call in our class a childhood vow. Yep. That's a deep concept we won't get into, but that you must have made a vow out of that experience. Oh, absolutely. And also it's scary too. Like it's it's like when I think about that and like having kids someday, like I'm gonna screw my kids up. You I think are absolutely yeah. gonna screw that's the best news you are gonna screw uh, your kids up. I am just gonna have a word since you brought that up because I'm a dad. You're not yet a dad. Uh, I had a dad come to me through the MLA kind of stuff. He was looking for some leadership anxiety coaching. He'd had a rough dad. And uh, he talked about how he really came to love his heavenly father through the imperfections of his rough dad. Mm. And then he said to me, this is the thing. He said, and so, you know, he, he has three kids. He has four kids. And he says, so I'm going to be a perfect dad for them. Mm. Nope. And I said, <laughs> I said, how are they going to get to know their heavenly father if you're in the way? You right. know, like, oh, man. So, yeah, so you have this incident. The teacher calls you up. You're full of shame. You then make meaning out of that as a third grader. When did you start to notice the impact that had on you? Not until I was in my 20s. I don't think yeah. it took a long because I mean, I, I actually had a conversation with my brother about this. He's a physics major over at Clemson and he's back. He's in Colorado right now um, because they're obviously not meeting on campus. Right. Um, and we were talking about um, how humans develop these protection things on themselves of like, hey, I, I know that this pan is hot. I'm not going to touch it again because I already burned myself once. And how as a, when you make those childhood vows, they're, you make them because you, you're trying to protect yourself yeah. in some way, some type of um, natural selection aspect to it. I don't yeah. know exactly what it is or what to call it, but you, you do it to protect yourself because it's going to hurt you if you don't. And it doesn't, it's not until it's not actually a threat to you anymore that you're able to realize it, I feel like. So that's why it took me so long to even recognize that I was had. I felt like I had to be the smartest person in the yeah. room, and then it wasn't even until three years after I recognized that that I realized where it came from. Yeah, and sometimes you 
I don't think you'll ever find out. Yeah. Because it might be something from your when you're really, really young. Even unconscious. Right. Yeah. And I think you know when once you've identified that you have an you you do something, you have an issue where there's this recurring pattern that you keep getting stuck into. Um then I think you're opening the gate to figure out when and how and why that happened. Yeah. Um, and it is, it takes, it takes a long time. Like it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I, I think you, you find out those instances because they're very vivid. Like I can still remember. You can see yourself the in room, the room. I can see the yeah. class. I can see the faces. I can see the teacher. I remember the tone of voice. Yeah. I remember how I felt up there and then after. And I remember the book that I grabbed to try to read just to kind of just reprocess everything, which was Harry Potter, by the way. Oh, the wow. Stone, Interesting. So. Yeah. Which I, I love those books. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, very vivid memories of that exact instance after I realized that's where it came from. So. And the teacher almost sure has no idea. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know if she's alive anymore, to be honest yeah. with you. But that's yeah. the scary thing for me on the flip side of it as a leader is when have I done that to somebody? Like that's reality is I've done that to people and don't right. know the deep pain it's caused of something I didn't mean or, yeah. So so then another way to change is if you notice yourself placing more weight on an incident that didn't happen very long in the past, that's a sign of a childhood vow. So you put a lot of weight on that third grade experience. It probably happened in a matter of a couple of minutes, right? but it's infected years of your life. Right. Another way to, to recognize it is um, the superlatives that I will never, I must always mm -hmm. uh, to be okay. This is kind of deeper work, but if you're spiritually stuck, getting help to figure out what events in your past are you now wearing like a set of glasses to look at your future through? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what a childhood vow does. It takes your past and it pulls it into the future as if you're doomed to, to be under its bondage. It's pretty right. powerful. Right. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any uh, childhood vows like that that you can remember in instances in your life? I have the stupidity ones. Uh, same. I, I don't remember being shamed in front of a group. Uh, I just remember always being the least smart kid. Hmm. Um, actually through even high school. So for me, so younger childhood vows had more to do with anger. Um, I was raised in a family that had a pretty volatile set of parents. And I'm just, it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that for whatever reason, I'm just a sensitive guy. Mm -hmm. I still am. But as a kid, I was crushed over and over again. So my vows were, I will never let someone know I'm angry at them because mm. I never want them to feel the way I feel when someone was angry at me. So it's very, even to this day, it's very hard for someone to discover that I'm angry at them. Mm. It took Lisa a long time to create a safe environment where I could share I was angry or disappointed or hurt. Uh, so that was a big, that was a big vow. And I think I started working on that when I was in my 20s. Mm. Uh, and I think I would have made that vow I don't remember openly making that vow. Mm. I just, the way I know it's a vow is I see the way I've operated in my life to just keep away from anger. Right. And I don't, I don't think everybody's is going to be like stark like mine where yeah. I remember the exact moment when yeah. this happened. It's, I think there's a lot more of like what you're describing is just kind of a accumulation of hap instances happening over and over again. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. So folks who, you know, maybe you're into the Enneagram or like you mentioned, Strengths Finders, or maybe you've read the MLA materials. Um, I, I think, Brendan, we would like affirm all of that and also say that alone isn't going to do much. So, so those of you who are trying to pray your way to change and read one more Bible study, and it's not that those are bad things. It's just that on their own, they don't carry the weight of transformation that we believe the gospel actually has. Right. I'll just say that I, I've experienced the freedom and peace of Christ exponentially deeper by brave practice and these other tools that we talked about today than if I was just reading about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. All right, folks, I think that's a wrap. So we're wrapping up season four. Boy, another great season. Uh, season five shows up, I think, late August we launch. Henry Cloud's going to be on the show. Uh, Jimmy Miato's going to be on the show. Wesley Hill. I'm trying to think of who we have. Scott the Painter. We've got some artists coming up this oh, year. Cool. Yeah, we've got a good crop of guests. So that'll, that'll be kicking off in August. We'll see you guys then. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 